Good morning once again. Um, I'm going to ask our team to pull up our first image here. We just read a scripture about the first communion or the last supper, a time when Jesus sat with friends and broke bread and drank wine and started something that has not ended and that we still don't fully understand. And this picture, uh, this is a picture of the Last Supper by da Vinci, is probably the most famous image of communion that we have, right? Uh, most of you have seen this or some version of it. You may have seen one of the many pop culture parodies, a particularly famous one uh, is the Battlestar Galactica Last Supper. We have scientist Last Suppers. If you Google Last Supper, you're gonna find any and all arrangements of 13 people uh, at a table like this, just like the Da Vinci. Um, but it doesn't look a lot like the Luke describes the supper to be, right? It's, it's an imagining. It's an imagining in the context in which the artist lived of what the most important night in history to him or one of the three or four most important nights of history might have looked like. In Luke, it says that they reclined. Um, I once had a pastor lead me through a communion Passover where we all reclined on lower seats as they would have in that day and in that time. Um, and eating and drinking together feels different when you're in a pose of relaxation, um, when you're at a low table. It, says that they were speaking together. These were friends. They probably were not all cheating towards the viewer. <laughs> they probably were in a circle looking into one another's eyes and at one another's faces and sharing hands and bodies with one another as a community. It says um, that Jesus and the apostles took this festival meal, this Passover together with intention and with purpose, but they were not people who had a lot of money. <laughs> So their surroundings were probably not as lush and as rich as these. They were probably a little more humble, a little more modest, a little more clay and put together on the fly. But I'm not mad at that. <laughs> I don't think it's wrong for us to have an image of communion in our head that does not exactly match the Luke, that does not exactly match the first telling of the tale, the first telling of the night. Because one of the things that I love about Holy Communion, one of the things that moves me to tears about communion is the way in which there are parts of this original story. The words that we say, for instance, right? You have heard somebody say almost every Sunday here, do this in remembrance of me, when they broke the bread or when they took the cup in remembrance of the way that Jesus said it first. I find that moves me to tears, but also what moves me to tears about communion is the way in which we do it differently all around the world in our giant holy communion of two billion Christians who do things and feel things in different ways and who have been created to be different by God. I think this about communion, baptism, and the Bible, which really at the end of the day are the only three things that all Christians share in some way. Even if we think people should do those at different ages or do them in different ways, they are fundamentally shared by all of us, which is why for Methodists, communion and baptism are considered sacraments, particularly holy and special ways of knowing God's grace in our lives. And there's something beautiful about the fact that whether you go to a church where you take communion by intention, 
you take some bread and dip it in a cup, or whether you have someone put a wafer into your mouth and onto your tongue, um, as in this next image, or whether the bread and the cup are passed among the people from one to another. I've gone to churches that were small enough where we all stood in one circle and took communion together at the end of worship. I've gone to churches that were big enough that there had to be tables set with bread and cup at the back that you went and got yourself because there was no way to serve so many. There are so many ways to take communion, but all of them are rooted in this one story, in this one night, in this one experience of Jesus saying to us, do this and remember me. And we continue to do it, even though it's a mystery <laughs> of what exactly it does to and for us. And I find that beautiful. There are a number of different ways to take communion. Here's one. Uh, our next image is of a particularly beautiful World Communion table. Um, Methodists, who are the subject of our July sermon series, what's the deal with Methodism, what's our relationship to them, who are they, what do they do, um, celebrate World Communion Sunday every October 5th to kind of celebrate this idea that communion both joins us and is differently reflected in different parts of the body. And so we have a lot of different versions of bread and a lot of different versions of cup. And you'll see tables laden with everything from uh, pita to challah to rye in this um, living into the idea that we are both one and many at the same time. And that was a part of what Jesus was trying to tell us and a part of what Jesus was trying to do with this table. But there's one communion story in particular that I um, tell to myself a lot when I'm trying to figure out what communion means in my life, why we are a church that chooses to do communion every single Sunday. And that's the story of the Kakure Kirishitan, um, the, the secret Christians of Japan. Some of you may know this story from the Portuguese side of things, from the book or the movie Silence that came out a couple years ago. Um, but the Kakure Kirishitan um, are a group of Christians in Japan who in the 17th century, couple Portuguese friars head to Japan to do missionary work. Japan lets them in. And they start telling the story of Jesus. They start talking about the Bible. They start talking about their faith. And within about 40 years, a little bit less, um, the empire has decided that they are a threat to the empire's power and that no talk or action of Christianity will be allowed on the island ever again. They start hanging priests, uh, expelling them. Um, uh, cracking down on anyone who expresses any form of Christianity in public life. And so the small groups that had already converted go completely underground, completely underground. Um, but they don't go silent. <laughs> they don't stop practicing. They start communicating the story of Christianity completely orally from generation to generation. They inhabit the practices of Christianity from what they remember of the first few years that they shared together from generation to generation for 400 years until the next time um, that Christians are openly allowed to be on the island. Um, and so they develop a lot of really unique syncretic practices because they're this small community that's figuring it out with very few resources and very little contact with other Christians. And so... Um, there's very few pictures and videos remaining, but the Kakure Krishitan would take communion with sake and rice in the back rooms of their homes so that no one could see them and no one would know as a family. <laughs> and families would teach other families who were a part of the tradition in these little fishing villages. Um, and they would keep alive something that had moved them and transformed them 
um, in the way that they could with the simple things that were before them. And it was exactly what Christians have done in every age and every year throughout the history of time. And it was something totally unique and something totally new, a creative expression of the Holy Spirit's movement in our real time and our real bodies and our lives when things get hard and things get rough and things bear down on us. I am so moved as someone who has the freedom to live into the religious life that I am called to live, as someone who can follow God in all of the ways publicly um, that I feel called to, to think about the faith and commitment that this took <laughs> for this long to say, we will do this and we will do this together. And I think acts like communion are part of how you do it. That it's not just the stories that you tell, it's not the intellectual part that lives with you and that makes you a Christian and that keeps you in it. It's the things that you do. <laughs> it's the things that we do together. So there's a lot of ways that I find communion extraordinarily beautiful. <laughs> um, but communion has also always been a source of conversation and a source of tension within the Christian community. Um, and it has a really interesting history within Methodism. Um, one of the debates in the early days of Methodism, the movement of which we find ourselves a part, um, which was started by two brothers, John and Charles Wesley, uh, and then it kind of moves to the United States, and then it takes off hugely within the United States in the 18th century. By the early 19th century, um, being a Methodist was the most common expression of Christianity in the United States, and it only took a couple of decades. One of the reasons why was that Wesley, who grew up in this sort of very rigid and stultified Church of England environment, his father was a priest, um, believed that we should take the message to wherever the people were in whatever way it would make sense to them <laughs> in the same way that people do this with communion. And so he would go and preach in open fields and he would go and preach in bars. And something they were famous for was taking the words to old bar songs and like making them godified <laughs> so that people could see in the fabric of their everyday life this story that we are all a part of, of what God has done for us and the way that Jesus meets us in the fabric of our everyday life. And so that comes to the United States and the expression it has in the United States is that people are um, pretty spread out uh, in part because of a history of tragic colonialism and stealing of lands, but people are really, really spread out, particularly in the Midwest, they're far away from each other. Um, and so no little town can really sustain its own church. But Methodists are committed to being wherever the people are in all of the ways that the people are there. And so they start this thing called circuit riding, where preachers would spend most of their time on a horse. And Wesley actually invented a mechanism so that one could read while one was on a horse, because he believed you should read for five to eight hours a day, things to tickle your brain and theology. I cannot imagine reading on a horse like reading in a car is hard enough. Um, but these preachers were circuit riders, which meant that they would travel from town to town, and most preachers served 20 to 30 different towns that were hours away from one another by horseback. And so they would sort of go stay in one place for a couple of weeks, do the pastoral care, do whatever marriages needed to be done, teach a little Bible, equip people to teach it themselves, and then go to the next town for a couple of weeks. And what that meant was that most people didn't get communion very often because the pastor was only around one out of every 30 sessions, right? And so you could only get communion when they came. And so people sort of started to feel like that's how communion should be, right? 
It's like fancy and special and reverent. And so let's not do it too often. And so they started to think of that as a good way to live life, not something that was a logistical issue, but something that was um, a habit of the church. Let's not take communion very often, because then when we do take it, it'll be super fancy. <laughs> and they started to, to talk about communion as something that you could only take, that you could only do, if you were in a good enough position of heart and mind and soul. So you had to be uh, right with the Lord. You had to have done a certain number of things to take communion. One of the most confusing things I ever read in my Methodist history class, uh, I was reading something that John Wesley had written. And you're like reading in a different version of English, right? And so your mind's already like having trouble processing. And he said, and he, it, there's this sense of great anger. And he says something like, never, ever lift the elements of communion above your head. And I was like, what? <laughs> like, what? what? Why would that be an issue? Why? Like, of all the things to be a thing, churches can get nutty. But why would lifting it above your head be an issue? And so I asked my professor about it, and he said, oh, let me tell you about that. The reason that he was so angry about that is that there were churches that had started to say, almost none of you are holy enough to take communion. None of us have reached the peaks of spiritual strength that we need to engage in communion. So instead of giving it to you, pastors would lift it up so that everybody could see it and then not let anybody eat it. And then not let anybody eat it, because they're sort of, kind of making the point, this is super special and super fancy. And so y'all got to get right before you can take it. And so what he was railing against was that idea <laughs> that it was only for some times, that it was only for some people. And in this context, he writes a sermon called On Constant Communion that if we translate it a little bit, I think could still be given today, where he says, um, communion is a means of grace. <laughs> It's a place where we meet God. It's a place where we hear Jesus' story. It's one of the very few things that Jesus directly told us to do. Never, ever don't do it when you could. <laughs> if you can't, fine, right? Nothing's wrong with not being able to. But if you have the opportunity, don't let anything keep you from the love of God because God won't let anything keep you from the love of God. And so why would you get in its way? And he said, take communion as often as you can. Take it multiple times a day. Some of you may have noticed that on a Sunday, often one of our children will come around to the table a second time because they like the taste of the bread <laughs> or they are hungry. And it is, for me, a commitment to the work of Christ that every single time someone comes to the table, I will offer them communion. They could come forward 10 times, 12 times, 15 times on the same day, and it would be a gift to take it again. It would be a gift to experience the love of God again. And to have that desire on their heart is a gift that children experience that most of us could do with feeling a little more of. <laughs> that sense of yearning and desire and wonder and interest and curiosity about this thing that we do that is simple and yet gorgeous and beautiful. And so he says, take communion as often as you can. And I thought about that this week. Um, I'm a big advice column reader. I love advice columns. It's like a way to spy on other people without being like weird, um, right? You know, just get to people watch without getting up in people's business and uh, figure out what you think their decision should have been. Uh, if, if you're ever looking for a game to play at dinner, my husband play a game and I play a game where we'll read the question and then both come up with an answer and then we read whatever answer the columnist gave. It's always great for conversation. Um, and I read an advice column letter this week that I was 
shocked by, which was someone felt like their significant other was saying I love you too much. They said, every single time we talk on the phone, they say I love you. What is up with them? What is wrong with them? Should I be watching out for a codependency in our relationship? And I'm sure that they had a history that led them to that place. We all are individuals. But I just could not, I just could not imagine ever thinking that there were too many I love you's in my life. That there were too many I love you's in my life. I say I love you to my children and my partner and to you every time I see you or send an email or um, interact because I cannot imagine a world that has too much I love you. It's something that's so hard for us to truly understand. It's something that's so hard for us to live into. It's something that we so crave hearing and believing. I want to repeat it every day and every minute and every hour. And I think that communion is one of the ways that God says, I love you to us. That God says, I love you. And so how could we ever think that there is too much <laughs> or think that there's a way that we can keep ourselves away from that love? The communion table is a place that we have declared, and this is really important, is open to everyone. Some of you may have been in a place where you had to be a certain age to take communion, or you had to be in a certain place in your spiritual life, or you had to have a certain level of knowledge about what communion means. We don't have any of those barriers. Anyone can and should take communion because we believe that it's not something we do. It's God saying, I love you. And it's Jesus saying, remember me. Remember my story. Remember what I lived for. Remember what I died for. Remember that I came back for you. And you can do that with rice and sake or pita and juice or bread and cup filled with whatever they are filled with when you do them with remembrance of me and remembrance of a Jesus who would sit not at a table quite like that one, one a little lower, with his friends but also with his enemies and say to all of them, my blood of the new covenant is for you. My blood of the new covenant is for you. I live for you, I die for you, I come back for you. No matter who you are and what you have done, it is the greatest love letter ever written. <laughs> and too many of us either think we're not good enough for it or are taking it out of habit and not remembering, not remembering all that it has been given to us for. And I was thinking about this, and um, there's actually an apology that I want to make to all of you. Um, an apology from my heart about something that I think I've done in my preaching ministry here, in my pastoral ministry here, which I'm probably in good company in as a Methodist. <laughs> um, someone once said to me, there are denominations that are named after uh, how they're organized, right? Episcopalian church. There are denominations that are named after who they're for. Roman Catholic Church for everybody. And there are denominations that are named after what they do. Methodist Church, we have a method. We have things that we do. Um, a big part of the history of the Methodist Church is that we wanted to do things, like take communion as often as we can. We wanted to do things, like serve the world and have justice. We wanted to do things, like have small groups and discipleship for everybody. But I, and I, um, much like Wesley, am tempted into that uh, to always focus on the thing that we can do with what Jesus has taught us, on the thing that we can do 
with the scripture that we hear, on the thing that we can do with the God who moves us. Um, often my sermons will have at the end, right, uh, here's a way we could try that this week. Here's a thing we could experiment with together. Here's a way we could be. And those are real. And I say those because I need them as much as I think other people need them. I need to feel empowered that God can be real in my everyday life, <laughs> that there are ways that I can act on this um, extraordinary thing that God has done in my life, which is make me feel truly beloved for the first time, even if I don't feel that way all the time, <laughs> that God has created me and has created you and you are gifts to the world. And I want to feel empowered by that to be different <laughs> and for the world to be different. And so I focus on these things we can do, but I think in all of that, I may have forgotten, <laughs> I may have forgotten to make real and make true and make certain that we know that while there are things we can do, our faith is never, ever, ever about the doing. <laughs> that there are mysteries in who God is and how Jesus shows up for us. And that there are guarantees we can do nothing to change, shape, or add to. That what God is doing in our lives is not something we can ever force or ever destroy or ever take away. That part of what Jesus was doing when Jesus gave us communion was a reminder not to do something or else, but that when you remember, you will remember that there is nothing you can do to make me stop loving you. <laughs> that there is nothing you can do to draw farther away from me. That there is nothing you can do to make me forget you because I made you. And when we remember Jesus, we're remembering what Jesus did, but we're also remembering who we are which is people of enormous value and worth and dignity and grace and belovedness, even if we sat on our asses for the rest of human history. <laughs> we are people who God made with purpose and intention. We are people who God loved. We are people who God said, you can murder me and you cannot make me go away. You cannot make me go away and you cannot make me stop and you cannot make me love you any less and you cannot make me love you any less passionately. And so I will say I love you to you every Sunday in this communion table. And whether or not you come forward, and whether or not you take a bite, and whether or not you take a sip, and whether or not you say the prayer, and whether or not you think about me or read the Bible this week, I love you, and you can't do anything about it. <laughs> I worry that I have forgotten <laughs> to make sure that we know that. Because it is the easiest thing in the world to forget. And Jesus has told us to remember. So many of us walk through life forgetting about the miracle that is our creation. About the miracle that is who Jesus Christ has been to us. About the miracle that is a God who makes with love and as bad as the world can be. Boy, it could be worse. <laughs> And yet there is joy, and yet there is hope. And Jason talks about a life that is challenging, but in which there are blessings. And so I want us to remember today the gift of communion. The gift of communion that Jesus sat down at dinner with his friends and said, here is a simple thing that you can do anyway, but that I will meet and reach you in, but that we also remember that even if we don't take the offer, 
we can't get out of the deal. <laughs> you are beloved no matter what. Grace has touched your life no matter what. Jesus will never abandon you no matter what. And we can try our hardest, but it will never be the case that we are forgotten. And that's something worth remembering. Amen? Amen. Amen.